Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Guy, are you with me? It's one o'clock or just after I'm one here. o'clock. The markets, and you and I talked a lot about the markets in the last couple of days. We did it on Fast Money a couple nights in a row. We've done a couple market calls here. We're doing trading spaces. Pretty interesting action. No one's going to take three days and kind of, you know, suggest there's any sorts of massive trends, except we are seeing the continuation of some trends that were just rampant in 2021. And then we're seeing some price action in some names that's kind of surprising to the opposite side. What is sticking out to you early on in 2022 in the stock market, guy? Well, what's sticking out to me specifically is the fact that, you know, yields continue to grind higher. And, you know, we, we don't mention Kathy Wood to, to cast dispersions, as I like to say, but we mention it because you look at the ARC ETF now below 90 and making a new 52-week low. And again, that's not an indictment over stock picking prowess, but what it speaks to, in my opinion, is everybody getting into these high growth, high valuation names. And listen, that was de rigueur, as they say, for the longest time. But you see what happens when the, when the chapter changes or when the, when the narrative changes. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah. So it's amazing how quickly these stocks give the entire moves back. So if you're asking me what sticks out early, well, that stuck out late last year, but it's sticking out again this year. Yeah, so. I think those are interesting names because we know that they're – a lot of names that a lot of retail investors are very interested in. These are themes that, um, you know, I think investors who are looking for alpha, they look to people like Kathy, who was a very early EV bull. She was an early crypto bull and she has this ETF and she focuses on really transformative technology. And, and I think the lesson here, if you look at the performance or lack thereof in 2021, in a year where the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ all gained more than 25%, that you know, timing is is really important in the stock market, and sentiment is really important. And sometimes the lining up of fundamentals and the sentiment is the thing that either gives you that alpha or that really negative performance. And you know, one of the big I, I think I saw a tweet yesterday, guy, that the top forty stocks in her ETF and that Arc ETF were all closed down on the day yesterday, which is pretty yeah. pretty astounding. And then you say to yourself, well, there's some really big names in there, right? Tesla's really big. Um, Square is really big. You know, Square traded above 280, okay, in August. It traded above a little above 260 in early November. And here we are below 150 right now, making new 52-week lows. And so we can all agree that's a great story. But you and I, I feel like we were taught like broken records and a lot of people were doing this. I'm not kind of giving us any special sort of thing. But when we were quoting valuations for stocks, multiples of sales that used to be expensive in uh, price to earnings ratios, you knew we had a problem here, right, Guy? Well, I, you know, I think we both knew, and I think a lot of people knew that as well. But the problem is, with that problem, is nobody cares when the market's going up. I mean, they totally tune you out. I mean, it's no, it's no more true now than it was then. The only difference is now the stocks are starting yeah. to respond to it. And, you know, again, I think you make a really good point. You know, we're not trying to be broken records 
we try to point out some of the flaws. I say it all the time. I refuse to be one of these people with the pom-poms and one of the cheerleaders of the market because that's not what we're tasked nope. to do. I mean, I think we all understand for 99% of the people, it's best when the stock market goes higher. I get that. But you're doing them a complete uh, disservice and injustice if you don't point out some of the things that can go wrong. And I think we've been pretty steadfast in that. Now, you haven't seen it in the broader market. I mean, the S&P 500 is within, what, 40 handles yeah. at an all-time high, 1% or so. And the Dow Jones is still basically 37,000. But you're seeing it in underlying names. And now you're starting to see it manifest itself in the NASDAQ, which, by the way, for you armchair technicians out there, has a bit of a major double top forming. Helene, I know, is here. Yeah, so. well, let me, let, me, let me say one thing on your cheerleader comment. The thing that I always find funny about cheerleaders is that if, the te- if your team is up 41 to nothing, you're just exuberant as a cheerleader. If your team's down, you know, down 41 to nothing, you're still cheering, right? Like, that's the job, right? You're there to kind of shake the pom-poms and – so, um, you know, yeah, I've never been um, one to uh, to think of myself as a market cheerleader, but that. No, and, and you know that I no, was not. I know you were. I mean, you and I. I think, you know, you know, it, it is so unfortunate. Again, I don't mean to go down this rabbit hole, but since we're going down it, yeah. I will. I don't think you should ever attach certain adjectives to the market. Like it was a great day in the market that that was up 400 points. It was a lousy day in the market. The Dow was down 400 points because now you've conditioned the people. Yeah. I mean, take those adjectives out. The market was up. The market was down. That's just the way it works because I think we've what we've done, and I say we collectively, is you know people have this false false belief that the market never goes lower and that everything's going to be okay. Well. Maybe that's true, except that I think both of us well, think that uh, but, it is. Well, but here's the thing. And so, you know, the market is okay. If you just own, if you just own, um, you know, the indices, the market's okay. I mean, like, so you're, I just want to say something about the S&P. You know, I'm looking at it right now, and I see it down, let's say, a third of a percent. And then I see the equal weight S&P. It's kind of up or unchanged a little bit. And so I think that's important to kind of designate a little bit. Uh, between what's going on here. I see Microsoft down 2.5%. I see Apple down nearly 1%. I see Amazon dealing down 1%. I see Google Alphabet nearly down 3%. That, well, and, so, so just to stop you for yeah. a second, that's, I'm glad you brought up Google because that's been the one that sh- should be impervious to all this shit, right? Google should be the one that it doesn't have a valuation issue, in my opinion. Um, you know, they don't they don't sort of fall under the auspices of a lot of the stuff that's going on. Some of the individual risks that like a Facebook has. But here they we should. are. The stock has been the stock has been rolling over now since the late fall. Yeah. And we're pretty big levels in terms of support. If you go back. Twenty eight hundred. So, well, here's one yeah, thing. Here's one thing I was exactly going to say. Right. So then I was going to get to the Nasdaq. And one of the things I think is interesting, given the concentration in those handful of names, in the NASDAQ and specifically the NASDAQ 100, where what six or seven names make up probably 50% of the weight, the NASDAQ has not confirmed any of the new highs in the S&P since late all of December, the entire December. And so what happened to me, if we want to use a little military jargon here, because our friend Carter Braxton Worth, who does market call charts with us every Monday at 11 a.m. sponsored by FactSet. Please check that out, people. You can follow us at Market Call, MKT Call on Twitter. You get all the, the links there for that. But, you know, they shoot the generals last is the term that he likes to look at. And what I think is really interesting, I pointed this out, Guy, 
when Adobe and Salesforce, these were companies that had over 250 billion market caps, okay? This was a month and a half ago. When they reported what was their essentially their calendar Q3, both stocks dropped 10% the next day on disappointing guidance. Look at them today. So this isn't like the little shitty, like work from home names, you know, that, that, that like anybody could push around back in late 2020 or early 2021. These are big stocks, right? So they shot the, um, the enlisted guys and gals, right? And then they kind of came out, uh, came for some of those LTs and the captains a little bit, right? That's what's going on here. You know, maybe, maybe the Salesforce and Adobe are the kernels. And then the last shoe to drop might be that the Microsoft, the Apple, the Amazon, the Google. What do you say to that guy? Well, I mean, you mentioned Adobe. Adobe, I don't know if people, well, I know. It's a quarter of a trillion dollar company. It's a $250 billion company, not a small company. Why do I mention that? Because this was a $700 stock. If you want to get down to brass tacks, it was a $699.54 yeah. stock. I believe on November 19th, and now it's trading 524. That is a huge move for that size of a company and a very short 25% guy, if you want to do the math. You know, almost thank exactly. you. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And again, it, it does not manifest itself into the broader market yet. But when you start dissecting these individual names, and I've said this a dozen times, these are not biotech stocks. These are not small micro cap names. These are huge companies that are having 25, 30, 40% moves in the course of three weeks to a month. That's problematic. I mean, to me, that's, right. that speaks to something below the surface at the broader market. Can I, so let me ask you a question, because in the not so distant future, maybe two weeks or so, we are going to be in the thick of Q4 earnings season. And really, you know, backward looking, the results are not going to be that important. It really is going to be about visibility for the current quarter and maybe for the balance of the year. OK, so when you think about that and we've all been conditioned now that you know, a lot of GDP growth in Q3 and Q4 were lobbed off because of these variants in Q1. That'll be interesting. I mean, maybe it's a mulligan. Maybe it's a, maybe it's not. But I don't think that you could say that any of these companies that are getting hit really hard right now, especially some of these larger cap tech companies. I don't think that they've been really aggressive with their forward guidance guy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think if anything, they've been cautious. And that was one of the big stories about Q3 earnings that got done, let's say, in early November. I think everyone was like, oh. Well, given what we saw with the Delta, we, we expected it to be much worse. So this is not really on the companies, in my opinion. No, and it's, and it's not, not at all. Analysts. It really is about what investors were willing to pay for what they expected to be, you know, a reflation trade or, or whatever it was when things got back to normal versus what they're, you know, what they're willing to pay now. So is it only rates is the reason? It just can't be only rates. No, I don't think it's only I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I think clearly when you have a two year that's quadrupled in the course of three months and you have a 10 year yield that's gone from, you know, 165 down to 133, back to 150, down to 135, back to 168. I mean, the volatility in the 10 year, I think that's part of it. But to your point, I mean, it's not the, it's not on the companies, it's on the market participants. And, you know, Pat, I've said this a hundred times. Passive investing is great. And it really, you know, when the market's going higher, everybody wins. I totally get it. But when passive becomes active, it ain't going to be active on the way up. And when the market just the flows go in, regardless of valuation, news flow, headline risk, any of that stuff, that's wonderful. Again, when stocks like Adobe are going from basically 
300 to 700 in the course of a year and yeah. a half. Uh, but then when the market starts taking into consideration valuation in some of these headwinds, you see how quickly things go pear-shaped. So no, it's not on the companies. You know, I think passive investing is part of the problem. And I'm going to say problem because I think it is. And I also think, you know, if you want to stick by the mantra of don't fight the Fed, I said this on Monday. Well, I don't know. You don't fight them when they're easing. I don't know why you would fight them when they're going the other way. And that's what bulls are doing. Well, that, yeah, that's, and that's what's happening right now in the markets. And then they come for the major ones next. All right, let me ask you this because, you know, you've been um, fairly bullish on financial stocks, banks in particular, large money center banks. I know you also like the investment banks. And you've also been really bullish on oil services names. I know that you like some of the large integrateds also. What do you make of, you know, we just spent a lot of time talking about the devastation in, in, in a lot of different tech um, areas of tech. What do you make of the price action in, let's say, the XLE or the OIH up, you know, the OIH is up like 10% in a straight line in just a few days, yeah. okay? And then bank stocks, look at the XLF and look at what some of these bank stocks did. I don't, is that the stuff that you, like, does that confirm any of your bullish views or does it make you less bullish near term because you're like, uh, I don't <laughs> love the piling into that, no. you know what I mean? Like, it just, it just seems like too much too fast. I'm just curious. That's a great question. No, it's not confirmation at all. I mean, because if you go back to the OIH, for example, I mean, if you go back to January, of the, basically this time last year, the OIH was about 165. Uh, by March, it was 225. Then you go back down to 175 in April, back to two, I think, 40 or so in June, back down to, two, again, 170 or so in August, back to 225 in October. This, this vacillation, this has happened now four or five times. So all this is is a repeating pattern. It will confirm my bullish views, the OIH specifically, if we get a close above, let's say, 230, and we're light years away from there. We're about 10% away from there. But my view has not changed. Like, I still think oil is the place to be. And now, finally, the OIH is starting to catch up with the commodity. I've pointed out a number of times that, you know, the three biggest components of the OIH, Halliburton, Schlumberger, and Baker Hughes, I think they're 32% of the OIH, maybe a little bit more. Both Halliburton and Schlumberger, they're just too cheap. I mean, I don't care what you want to say about the industry. On a valuation basis, those stocks are too cheap. And with Halliburton specifically, you're looking at a company with close to 50-something percent EPS growth, um, trading at maybe low teens multiple. Just it, Again, it just doesn't make sense. So I think oil services go higher. I think energy goes higher. In terms of banks, you know, you turned me on to this one, Dan. Morgan Stanley, which, by the way, was a really shitty stock for a long time. Pardon my French. No, listen, go back. For three years, Morgan Stanley did nothing effectively from sort of, I want to say from like 2016, 17 to 2019, it's only recently that it got itself off the mat and it's done it in a meaningful way. The fact that they've gotten themselves into three very distinct business um, verticals, I think that's really important. So I think Morgan Stanley continues to be the investment bank specifically that not a lot, enough people are talking about. All right. So what do you make of um, just some of these pairs? We talked about this last night on CNBC's Fast Money um, you know, like look at today, NVIDIA down three and a half, huge winner last year, uh, you know, Intel um, up three percent. It was a massive underperformer in the semi space. So I'm just going to give you a few more like this. Um, there was some easily uh, we, I think we highlighted uh, some of the ones in fintech, you know, 
square or block, whatever they want to call it, down dramatically, and the bank stocks were up. We saw it with Carvana and AutoNation, you know, mm-hmm. some of these weird things today. You know, AutoNation's basically unchanged. Carvana was down 7%. I think it was down, down like, you know, 10% um, yesterday. There was, like, we could have gone through, there were like 10 pairs like that. What were we calling it? We are calling it out with the new, in with the old, or something like that. Yeah, which is what, great what, for what does that mean like you? being old. You, you know, yeah. you want so, what does it speak to? Well, it speaks to one of your original uh, questions or sort of premises. Is it all about rates? And I say yes. Now, you mentioned NVIDIA, which is, uh, again, this is a stock we've talked about for years, and it's been a huge winner for over the last couple of weeks, notwithstanding. But today, you mentioned NVIDIA. The flip side is Qualcomm's up close to 2% today on a, on a mediocre tape, right? On an S&P that's now down 19 handles, you have Qualcomm north of 190 so what are people saying well maybe i don't like the, these high valuation names i want to be in the space but i want to be in a valuation that makes more sense and i i'm wrong all the time as you know dan but about three weeks ago i said there's something really weird going on with ibm it was a day i think it was on december 20th as a matter of fact when the market was getting obliterated and i think ibm was up on the day i said this doesn't make a lot of sense by the way i think at the time the stock was trading about 120 or so well Today, IBM's at 141, and it's the highest levels we've seen since the summer. Something's going on there. What's going on? People are saying, you know what? I can't deal with these high valuation names. i got to find something that's a little more interesting. And that's what's been going on now very quietly for a month. There's absolutely nothing interesting about IBM other than its price action. I mean, let's be frank. Yeah, I agree with that. Listen, I'm not speaking to the business model. They haven't fixed anything. It's just that what's the market doing now? The market is, I think, right, the market I'm going to show you love to value valuations that make sense. Okay, well, I mean, 115 to 142 in a straight line in the last month makes no sense. Go look at that chart, look at the gap in October when they reported their Q3 earnings and then gave guidance. It was disgusting. Yeah. I mean, like, like, so, like, all right, guy, I'm so glad you put this on my radar. I'm praying the stock goes to 145. I'm praying that you you will have the mother of all double tops if it gets back to 145 before Q4 earnings. This is going to be the short of the century. Timestamp it. I said it right here. I got no time for this. Cisco also did this, and you had a nice call there. I think you're right. I mean, if you go back and look when the world sort of went pear-shaped back in February, March, I mean, I think IBM was topping out around 145 before – Everything cratered. So IBM went from 145, I think, to like 85 in a straight line in a month. And I wouldn't, I'm not going to disagree with you now, but the only reason I bring it up is you're right. It doesn't make sense. So you have to be able to explain it somehow. And my explanation is, again, people getting out of the high valuation names and into valuations, it might make a little more sense. I hear you, buddy. Well, you, you, I mean, it's a great point. Um, you know, I, I think that there's also going to be a kind of baby with the bathwater sort of situation. Um, one of the things I think we talked about the other night on, on CNBC, I mean, there's tons of companies that have come public in the last, let's say, year and a half or so, whether it be through SPAC or whether it was direct IPO listing or there was so, plenty of regular way IPOs here. Um, there's a lot of really good companies trading at like crazy valuations relative to when they were on their road shows. And I think that'll be really interesting to see how beaten up some of these stocks get 
over the next couple months if we do have um, a rocky couple months. What's your take real quickly, because this is a, a segue to that on small caps in general, because if you think about the Russell 2000, you and I have talked that one to death. The breakout a couple months ago was a failed breakout. We talked about how it topped out in Q1 of 01 when rates were at their highs. You know, rates have been moving higher and the Russell is really stuck in that range again. So I'm just curious, like, is there an opportunity? Would you rather play the Russell in this massive long base, ultimately playing for a breakout at some point in 2022? Or do you want to just wait until the S&P comes back and kisses that uptrend or gets near that 200-day, which it hasn't done in a very long time? It hasn't sold off more than 5.5%. Or do you wait for the QQQ? And that's the one thing I just want to, before I get your question, in Q1 of 2021, the S&P sold off 5% or 6% from its highs. The NASDAQ sold off 20%. And the largest component then, Apple, sold off 19.9%. Okay, I almost want to wait for those names to correct where the exuberance to the upside got overdone. And then maybe they just oversell them relative to the broad markets. Your take on that and then small caps, guy. There's a lot there. I mean, I think you're- Too much? Too much? Not too much. I mean, let's just work backwards for a second. So in terms of the big names you're just talking about, you know, I know Apple. Everybody loves Apple. Apple's been so good to me. I get all the nonsense. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent. I'm agnostic about the company, about everything about it. I have one of their phones. Fantastic. But as I've mentioned and you've mentioned many times, you know, you've seen 25 to 40 percent peak to trough declines a number of times over the last few years. And each time has been a huge opportunity, and you're going to get one again. So to think up in a straight line is foolish, and I think you're right to wait. So, And I do think there's a real good chance that that 157 level, which was a prior all-time high, is tested. In terms of the Russell, I remember the day. We did, a, we did a Twitter spaces. It was Monday, December 20th. You asked me about halfway in, what are you looking at today? And I said, I'm looking at three things. I'm looking at the XRT. And I'm looking at the IWM. The IWM has to hold 210, which had been support since basically February. And I said the VIX has to close below sort of 23. I think it was trading 24 and a half or so at the time. And those things happened. And if you go back and look, Monday, December 20th proved to be the bottom for a lot of these things. In terms of trading the IWM, at 224, whatever it is trading right now, you're in no man's land. You're flipping a freaking coin. I have no idea. But you know what? I don't have any idea. Neither does the IWM. The IWM doesn't know if it wants rates to go higher or lower because the IWM doesn't know if rates are going higher because we have an improving economy or because inflation is a problem. Right. Hopefully, um, all your questions in a... It's kind of like, you know, that part in that Wolf of Wall Street. I know that you've seen that movie numerous times. Wait, what is that <laughs> name? Why do you do this? Because you know you're going to piss me off now. Well, well you love Leo and you love no, Martin Scorsese. So what's wrong? I mean, come on. Who is the guy? Who's the character? What's that dude's name? McConaughey plays this no, character in the beginning. No, no. Well, I know, but guy, he has this bit where he no, says no, no, nobody what, knows. I don't care if you're Jimmy Buffett or Warren Buffett. Nobody yeah. knows which which way a stock yeah. is going. Okay, no, no. But what's the name of the? Who's the protagonist? Um, his name is Jordan Belfort. Yeah, it's funny. Um, what is he about? Five foot six. And I'm just, I know I, I won't say it because we're. Taking I know it. I know where you were going with it. Okay. Okay. What yeah, a you, you could stand next to him and you could rest your, your. And by the way, he couldn't find freaking Wall Street with a GPS. He was out there in, in where Lake Success, Long Island. 
I mean, yeah. are you kidding me? Maybe he was the wolf of Long Island, but he wasn't the wolf of frickin' Wall Street. All right, someday Guy Adam is going to watch that movie, and someday he's going to watch The Big Short with our good friend Danny Moses. The last about 10 seconds, and there'll be two sounds. Yeah, you hitting him, hitting him, hitting the ground. We know that one. Hey, Guy, just so you know, so on Wednesdays, I do this um, in, the money, in the Money with Fidelity Investments. It's going to drop later this afternoon. And I have a trade idea on that one in Ford, and you're going to have to tune in to check it out. But I got to tell you. You, you see have... how it is to get me worked up, by the way? You just I know. That, I know. And it I just, know. you know why? Because there are a lot of people that spend a lot of time and spent and you know and worked hard to try to get an an actual real Wall Street institution, and then a piece of shit like him starts. With all right, okay. You want to have a little fight? You want to have a little fight? What about all those pieces of shits at all those venerable investment banks who almost took the, the entire global economy down? Do you think they're any better, guy? I mean, just just asking. I really want to get down to it. What really took the economy, if you really want it, it was six guys in, in Stanford, Connecticut at AIG Financial Products, number one, and then a handful of other people. It wasn't the hardworking, most 99% of the hardworking. Oh, but, 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 but in many instances, listen, I worked at Merrill Lynch in 2007, 2008. I worked on the derivatives desk. I was trading a prop book there. I mean, like, listen, the powers that be at all those banks were not really up to speed on, on a lot of the risk taking that was going on in the banks. I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, you know that, you, you know, I mean, so I don't know. I don't, I don't have problems with these guys in Lake success. It, you know, like I, of course I have a problem with them. They're defrauding little old ladies and trying to get them to buy penny stocks in their IRAs and they're ripping them off. But my point is, is like, I think there's been far more pain inflicted financial pain by the people with fancy degrees at fancy firms than a bunch of schmoes out in late success. That's my two cents on that. Is you know I know nobody points to Wall Street during the financial crisis, but they were they, they were they were complicit, but they were not alone. You know, a lot of those people getting second mortgages and buying another home and all those things, they were equally complicit. I mean, they should have known what they were getting themselves into. So. Just to blame Wall Street by itself, I think. I'm not saying it's um, insincere. but Guy, guy. Picture. Bank of America bought Countrywide in 2007. You know, I mean, like, like these guys, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew what the engines of growth were, and they knew how easy it was to write mortgages, write car loans, to write things that were going to adjust, and they were not going to – they knew, their models knew, uh, that they wouldn't be able to pay these things once they adjusted. So to me – you know, and, and I don't know, I don't mean to sound like the big short here or whatever. I'm no Michael Lewis or whatever, but, you know, everyone knew. Everybody knew. And even the people taking the double and triple mortgages. Everyone knew. That's exactly right. You're exactly right. And when you say everyone, everyone knew or should. Yeah, but you and I, Guy, on our podcast on the tape, we spent a lot of time talking about financial literacy and not just as it relates to the stock market. Okay. And one of the things that we know, we had a Donican Sue on who is a Super Bowl champ, plays for the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he spent a lot of his time away from football investing in programs to help people in, in all different sorts of communities kind of understand some of the things that, you know, maybe you and I have just taken for granted, that sort of thing. So, I mean, listen, I don't put it past anybody. Like, this stuff is complicated. You know what I mean? Like, and so, I don't know. I think there needs to be a um, onus on the people who are, you know, there, there needs to be a level of protection. And, you know, the other thing is, is like, put it this way. Remember, like, all the chatter about all the regulatory action taken against, you know, banks in the financial system post-financial crisis? 
Can you imagine if we did not have a lot of those regulations in place, like heading into this black swan event, which was the um, pandemic? Because make no mistake about it, the global financial crisis was not a black swan event. You know what I mean? Like people could see it. You talk about Michael Burry all the time. You never read the book, The Big Short or Saw the Movie. But if you talk to Danny Moses, who knows Burry, these guys were calling this for years. That's the story, right? And so not a black swan event. Pandemic, black swan event. Can you imagine if banks were taking the sort of risks or balance sheets and consumer side were taking the sort of risks that they were taking 10 years earlier and we had a, a black swan event like that? No, I'm, I'm totally with you. And in the final minute and a half, you're right. Now, the now instead of the banks taking all the risk, who's been taking all the risk? Who's taking on their balance sheet? The Federal Reserve. And now they're trying to unwind. And this is for next Monday's uh, trading spaces. But they're trying to unwind. Uh, and we'll see how successful they are. The biggest prop trade in the history of mankind. Good luck with that, Jerome Powell. Well, we wish him well, because if it doesn't go well, guy, we're all screwed. Uh, let's be frank. And, um, you know, I, I think the biggest lesson there is that, you know, we had this really long protracted recession in 2000, 2001, that we had a protracted bear market during that time period. The market topped out in what, March of 2000 and bottomed, I think, in late 02. And it took a war and it took a whole bunch of other things to cleanse the system. Lots of fraud, corporate fraud, all that sort of stuff. We had this big run, but again, guy, it was Wall Street that got the engine, kind of the lending engine, really repumped into. They had to reflate another asset, right? The Fed lowered rates too low, and 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 banks and, and lenders saw an opportunity. Then we had the financial crisis. Every time we do this, we're layering on, I guess, new trillions, right, that are going to be on that balance sheet that are never going to come off. There was an article in the journal yesterday. It's not just doing the taper and then starting to normalize rates um, and getting real rates, you know, kind of positive. But ultimately, they have to kind of take down that balance sheet. I'm no economist, and either are you, but I don't know in what sort of scenario that's going to happen. And I don't see any scenario where interest rates anytime soon, whether it be a year or two, go up in a meaningful fashion because they have to finance all that debt globally. My man, let's kick us out of here. We all gotta- right, buddy. That was fun, guy. You got you and I got to be a little punchy here. This was Trading Spaces. You and I do them every Monday and Wednesday. If you came into this late, it's sponsored by CME Group. We have our own Trading Spaces um, podcast. So this audio will go into the podcast stores. Go follow it there, people. We're putting it in our On the Tape podcast feed, which is the podcast that we do that drops every Friday with Danny Moses. CME Group is also the sponsor of that. Definitely follow that. Um, And then we also have a new podcast called OK Computer. It's on technology. I co-host it with a murderer's row of tech thought leaders, investors, operators. If I were on that, I would be Tony Lazzari, who was part of murderer's row. Second baseman, all, you know, great Italian-American. Back to you. Yeah. All right. Well, do us a favor. Go follow those in the podcast stores. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate you being here with us. We will be back on Trading Spaces um, on Monday at one o'clock right here. Check out the podcast. Thanks to everyone. Guys, that was fun, man. Talk to you, brother. Later. Later.